Over a thousand people died at the Reina Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh. That was five years ago, this April. To learn what caused it and what's happened since, as well as how we can prevent another such tragedy, I'm joined by Professor Julianne Reinecke of King's Business School. So, Julianne, welcome. Tell me, what led to Reina Plaza in 2013 and Tazreen in 2012? What is it that causes dangerous conditions in global supply chains? Yeah, sure. Of course, there's... Um well, thanks, first of all, for inviting me <laughs> to this. Um, well, there, there's a combination of factors that are coming together. And I think in, if we look at Bangladesh and the way the industry has developed, it's very much around the structural conditions mm-hmm. of um, how the industry has developed very rapidly since the 1970s and with very little government oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we often have is factories in shared buildings, mm-hmm. um, which are not purpose-built, they're mm-hmm. not meant to be a factory, they're not meant to have the heavy load of sewing mm. um, um, machines, yeah. yeah, and so on. Um, and um, often floors are being added illegally without planning permission, yes. such as uh, in the case of Rana Plaza. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three floors that were added illegally without mm-hmm. any um, you know, consideration of the structural loads of the buildings and so on. Um, and so inherently the, 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 you know, the building safety is, is not great. And I think on, on top of that, you have um, the, very much the lack of workers' voice to refuse unsafe work because, um, in, I mean, I would argue that the tragedy was entirely preventable because the day before there were cracks visible in, in, um, in the building. Um, and um, some of the other shops and there was a bank and a supermarket, they were evacuated and the, uh, um, the employees did not come to work. However, for the garment factories, the workers did not um, feel they have the power to speak up and refuse the work, mm. even though there were doubts about the mm. safety of the building. Mm. So let's just go back. So you're saying there's a lack of government oversight, there's a lack of regulation and there's flouting of regulation. Mm. Why does that happen politically? Why, why is there so little government oversight in Bangladesh, in the garment industry? Um, I mean, first of all, um, we should consider that um, ready-made garments make up over 80% yeah. of exports. Mm. So it's just a massively important industry. And why is that? Well, because it's one of the cheapest countries to produce. So I think there's a fear on the side of um, the government that um, any um, you know investment in, in the safety of the buildings and more oversight might push up the costs, yes. and therefore Bangladesh might, as a country might lose its competitive advantage for um, for cheap production. Mm. Um, and so I think, and and of course. Um, um, it's uh, the government does not have very much capacity there. Um, I think at the time there were um, now a number of government inspectors have been added, yes. um, but um, at the time there were I think um, 100 government inspectors for over uh, 4,000 factories that are registered yeah. with the um, uh, BGMEA, the Bangladesh um, Garments and Exporters Association, um, plus. A number of non non exporting factories plus um, knitwear factories plus mm-hmm. factories in in other sectors. So I think just um, uh, inadequate. Um, right. So capacity. to stay economically competitive, the country allows a deregulated context to keep prices low, 
and that creates dangerous, unsafe working conditions. But there is there is a form of regulation, which is private self-regulation. So many brands on our high street mm. in Berlin, where we're recording, and in London, where we're both from, uh, many brands have their own corporate codes of conduct. They have audits where there are independent inspectors who come around and check if things are okay, check workers' pay, safety. And hadn't that just happened, just in Rainer Plaza, like a fortnight before? Yeah, absolutely, and that's, um, I think, so the, the... And they said it was fine. Well, um, to, to, be, to be, first of all, two of the factories um, have been audited against the um, business um, and social compliance initiative standard, mm -hmm. the BCI standard, um, and um, what well, structural safety was outside the remit ah, right, of, okay. of, um, of that standard. To be fair, however, um, some some groups have um, launched a complaint at the OECD um, against um, TÜV Rheinland, who was mm -hmm. one of the um, certification companies mm -hmm. um, that, um, well, many of the unsafe conditions at the factory should have been picked up in, yeah. in in the audit. Yeah, but I think we also need to um, kind of consider the um, you know the the way audits work. Um, first of all, they're not trained. They're social audits. They're not trained engineers. They're not mm. experts on mm. fire, electrical, and building mm. safety. Um, they have often very little time to do mm. an in-depth audit. Mm. So there are lots of audits, a duplication, duplication of audits. Some suppliers in, uh, in in Bangladesh told me they face an audit on average once a week. Uh, the manufacturers are so. We talk about audit fatigue, right? Yes, Whenever absolutely. you talk about. Whenever you speak to a manufacturer, whether they're from Turkey, Cambodia, Bangladesh, they tell you they're so fed up of audits. It's yeah. this huge, huge paperwork. It's enormously painful and annoying for them. Yeah. And then the realization for us is that even though these audits are creating a cost on manufacturers, they don't actually seem to improve conditions because... These audit companies it's a profit-making enterprise and they try to secure a new business, you know, and say that they're doing stuff so that they can get legitimacy and more company mm -hmm. and more business. But we still see conditions like Reina Plaza. Yes, and I think um, that has really shown the, the failure of um, social auditing as, mm. as a model mm. um, to manage supply chains. It's really, um, you know, maybe a sticking plaster on... Um, um, an inherently flawed model. Mm. Um, so, um, and I think that that you know, I think it really shows that it requires rethinking of um, of, of that entire model of of, of social. But that is very much the global model. I mean, that's how we govern global supply chains. It's mm. all private initiatives. Each company has its own corporate code of conduct, which every manufacturer has to sign up to, whether it you know. But okay. But in Bangladesh, something new is happening. Well, actually, two new things. So to prevent another industrial accident, many global buyers signed up to the Bangladesh Accord, and that was committed mm. to factory monitoring, monitoring financial investments, a grievance mechanism so workers could raise complaints, and also binding arbitration. How did that happen? How did we get this new departure from all the private uh, regulation? Uh, the short story or the long story? Both, both. <laughs> so the short story, um, just a lot of pressure from um, campaigning groups, from trade unions, from um, citizens, from um, international governments, and also very much the recognition of companies that um, social auditing didn't work, mm. didn't pick up mm. the flaws um, in, in that building, and the very real fear that um, another disaster was imminent. So, for instance, um, uh, when the um, when inspections by the court were conducted mm. after um, Rana Plaza, they 
in, in 50 of their inspections, they mm. picked up serious structural flaws. Um, and um, so I think the, the consensus is if nothing had been done, we would probably have seen um, another deadly accident mm. uh, in Bangladesh um, mm. on, on a large scale. And I think we should also not forget that, of course, Rana Plaza wasn't a single event. There was a series of yeah. um, accidents that happened mm. just before. So it's key here is transnational mobilizing, NGOs making a noise, damaging businesses' reputations, uh, companies worried that consumers will go elsewhere. Mm. And I think for many European companies, you'll correct me here, but for many European brands, this was about risk mitigation. That as you say, they didn't want to risk another Rainer Plaza. So it was less risky for them to adopt this binding arbitration and to submit to the, the these grievance mechanisms but many american firms actually uh, and other firms as well didn't want to sign up to the accord right mm. and they went for something different can you tell us about that yes absolutely so um uh, the accord is um, is is unprecedented because it's a legally binding agreement right between global union federations um industrial and uni global and um, over 200 companies mm. um, and I can um, only speculate as to why many American mm. companies um, did not want yeah. to sign this legally binding agreement mm. um, but they formed um, the, um, the alliance yes. for Bangladesh worker safety um, shortly after the accord has been formed as um, a, a sort of alternative yes. to the accord which is um, not legally binding in the same way the accord is binding and it does not have um, global unions or local unions as part of the decision-making structure of that um, of that initiative. So in that sense, it's very different from from um, the governance model. So um, I think um, many of the the European brands um, they have a history of um, social dialogue, mm. working with social partners, mm. working with um, trade mm. unions. Um, and often this is a model, um, you know, a very consensual model, especially mm. the Northern European model yeah. of um, trade unionism mm. is based on negotiation and dialogue. Mm. And, and so I think many of these companies um, might have felt just inherently much more comfortable mm. to uh, deal with global unions mm. and see them as equal partners, mm. as in this Northern European model. Um, and um, for instance, H&M, which mm. is the biggest buyer from yes. Bangladesh, and Inditex, which is the world's biggest fashion group, um, they had both um, international framework agreements with um, global union federations. So they already had engaged in a dialogue with these, um, with these unions. So I think they felt much more comfortable. So they had, so they realized the benefits of working together and they felt more f comfortable in that space. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think they also really saw that um, it's the main actors in the world of work who need to come together and who have a, who have a stake um, mm. in creating mm. a safe mm. industry. So the, Americans, the American system of union engagement is much more conflictual, perhaps, and le less collaborative dialogue. Yeah, more, much more adversarial. And mm. if, you, if you look at uh, one of the main um, actors uh, in, in the alliance, um, the Walmart, for instance, um, they're, they're known for their inter-union um, stance. I think that's, 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 mm. that's not a controversial thing to say. It's, it's widely known. So, so the idea is that the American firms didn't want to sign up to the binding accord because they were less comfortable due to their political economy of not being in their own domestic economy of being less engaged with unions. 
Um, I, I mean, because I, I guess another hypothesis is that America, it, they're responding to consumers, and maybe the European brands wanted to sign up to this binding accord because there was more pressure on them to be doing something concrete and substantive and binding. Mm. Whereas perhaps there was less NGO pressure in the in America. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, um, some of the um, so, some of the um, campaigning groups, um, for instance, the Workers' Rights Consortium, yes. based in Washington, yes. for instance, they've yes. been very, very active. They're one of the witness signatories, mm. um, and um, I think there's been a, a, a lot of pressure. And so I think the whole sweatshop movement started on U.S. campuses. Yeah, yes, yeah, students against sweatshops, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, getting their uh, yeah sweat-free apparel, etc. Yeah, 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 and actually the pressure has been so strong that some brands who initially signed up to the alliance um, actually then also decided they had to sign up to the accord for instance Fruit of the Loom yes, which is a collegiate yeah. supplier yeah, yeah, yeah. and because of the pressure they faced they decided that they would also sign the accord okay yeah. right okay so that's a nice example of the power of mm. protest yeah, and absolutely. consumer activism yeah. Yeah. okay right so the accord is different. So the alliance is like many other corporate codes of conduct, standard CSR. It focuses on outcomes, like building safety. Mm. It doesn't mandate that workers are involved in those audits. Is that a problem? Um, I, I, I think it's... Um, just, just to clarify, yes, I think the yes. alliance as well is quite different from standard CSR oh, right, in the okay. sense that it also brings the companies together and it's also a collective Right, yeah, yeah absolutely, yes. And I think that's a really important thing. Of course, it has many few, uh, um, fewer um, signatories than the Accord, I think about 20, 26. So the nice example of that, that would be a way of reducing audit fatigue, which we talked about earlier. Absolutely. You're not having yeah. to do audits for multiple brands. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it also provides very important leverage because, I mean, we have this image that, um, you know, the brands, the buyers, they're so strong, they can just enforce conditions upon their suppliers. Mm. But the reality is that um, one factory might supply to 10 or 15 different brands. Yes. If, if one brand says, oh, um, you know, I'm not happy with your conditions, um, I go elsewhere, that's not a credible threat. Yeah. Because then there are mm. enough other buyers. But if, you know, uh, 10 brands together say, oh, if you don't um, offer safe working conditions for your workers, we collectively leave, that's a very credible threat. Right. Um, and I think so. This I think the collective leverage is is really important, um, and um, I think what is very different in the alliance is that first of all, if you look at the deeds of the alliance, it mm -hmm. very much says that um, it's a voluntary association of business organisations, the primary purpose of which is to further their common business interests by strengthening worker safety. So it's very clear that um, they they act in the they are the initi initiated by businesses and act in the interest of business. Right. Um, they, um, I think because the accord was there um, before the alliance, mm. the alliance had to mimic the accord mm. in many ways. So there are many similarities and I think that that's, that's a very good thing. Um, so the inspection standards, they're the same because many accord and alliance brands share the same factory. So okay. again, you don't want to do yeah. duplication of audits. Um, the alliance also has... Um, 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 some mechanisms for work empowerment. It also um, trains workers in in safety and also, um, as, uh, which the court does as well, um, wants to 
enable functioning worker safety committees. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think the difference is that um, some of these, these mechanisms of worker empowerment are quite individualistic. To give you an example, um, so there's a, um, the Alliance has a worker helpline called Amada Kota, mm -hmm. Bangla for our, our voice. Um, and workers can phone up individually and complain about safety right. issues, which, which is great. Um, sort of like to be a whistleblower sort of thing. Yeah, sort of a whistleblower. But what happens is that then external actors come in and talk to the factory management and try to resolve it. So it doesn't really empower the workers to address these issues mm. themselves collectively mm. with their management in the factory. So, so they're not involved in problem solving. Exactly. Mm. They, are, they can flag the problems, but they're not. And there's no kind of element of building their capacity mm. to actually solve problems mm. and conflicts mm. when they rise. And it, it, it might, it's important to, re, to remind ourselves here that when we're talking about these workers, we're talking about... 75% of which are women, often rural urban migrants, so they're young, in economically insecure women, and most of their bosses are men, right? Yes. Yes, so yes, just reminding ourselves of the social context. That's the situation, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so then the, the accord is slightly different. Um, the accord, uh, the accord has more sort of industrial democracy, as you term it. Mm -hmm. What difference does that make? Um... So, first of all, um, because in the governance structure, the global union federations and the local unions are represented in equal numbers mm. um, and um, with, with, the, with the companies. Um, and I think that's really important. I, I think um, it really makes sure that um, the interests of the workers themselves are, are um, represented and also that it creates a very important accountability mechanism um, to, um, to hold the brands um, mm. to account. Um, I think um, the difference that it makes on the ground is that um, in in all these different steps in terms of the um, um, OSH committees, the Organization Health and Safe committees, um, and um, the complaints mechanism yeah. that is in place yes. where workers can um, collectively address um, safety issues in mm. the factories. Um, and I think it's, it's very much focused on building the capacity of workers to solve problems on their own um, without necessarily the involvement of external actors. So of course the complaints mechanism is handled by the accord and but the accord is here a mediator between um, the workers and, and the management and I think it's um, for you know sustainable uh, model going forward it's really important that um, um, there's this capacity being built for workers themselves to, to address these issues. And I think it is not just about having the technical skills but it's also about addressing the despondency and fatalism that might arise through that social context. Because if, as we know through many ethnographic studies of Bangladeshi factories, you know, when there's a meeting, it might be men, factory leaders, bosses, seated on chairs, on plastic chairs, and then you have a sea of women squatted on the floor, and they might look up to these people who know things when they might be self-deprecating, they might question their own skills, they might question their ability to speak out, question what they can achieve. And if we all underestimate ourselves, we might not try to push for more, but by building capacities and enabling workers, workers women workers, to see that they can fix problems is an important psychological step you know not just in terms of sustainability and, ha and you know capacity and on a technical level but also on a for self-esteem and seeing that you can fix small problems and that incrementally 
can enable workers to feel that they can achieve more themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think um, we should not forget that I think in, in the garment industry in Bangladesh um, is, is such an important employer, and many of the you know women come to the to Dhaka or Chittagong mm. or the um, the garment producing mm. areas to find employment, and it's also a means um, or, or could be a means um, for empowering these women. Right. So I think to giving them a voice mm. at their place of work is really, really important for that agenda. Mm. So by, because, okay, so let's say even in the Accord, there's some sort of the workers are doing the, this problem solving. Mm. And there's also beyond that, the Accord has also enabled a payout, right? Uh, in February, a brand was pushed to pay out. Yes, Can yes. Can you tell us about that? Um, that's due to the legally binding nature mm. of the Accord. Mm. Um, and um, where um, one brand that wasn't seen to comply with the terms of the accord that it had signed up to um, was, was was held accountable, um, and um, so um, I th and I think that really showed that the accord and that the nature of this legally binding agreement really has teeth, and I think that then also motivated a lot of the other brands. To, um, right, yes, to a sort of deterrent effect because you, two, you don't want to have that big financial. Absolutely. So yeah. the, playing the role of a sort of an ogre, scaring the others into. And be, and be also, we see a couple of things the Accord doing. One is that problem solving, capacity work building, getting the workers involved. Two is that scary deterrent. And three, on an everyday level, trained engineers going out to inspect factories. And a lot of factories have actually relocated into purpose built buildings, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. That's correct. I think we see um, um, a, sh a shift in, in, in the industry where um, many of these smaller factories and shared buildings that were inherently unsafe and would have been very, very costly for an individual um, factory owner who has then to you know, ensure the structural and yeah. fire safety of the entire building that just wasn't viable anymore. Mm. Um, so I think we see many relocations into purpose-built factories that um, you know are, where the structural conditions are inherently much better. Mm. So the accord was supposed to be domesticated by the government of Bangladesh, um, and that was, but it hasn't been because brands, unions, NGOs didn't have faith in the government to be able to manage this process. What, what happened? So what, why has it been renewed as an independent program? Why hasn't it been institutionalized by government, even though to you and I it seems so successful? Um, I think the, the partners felt that the, the work of the Accord had not been fully completed. I think over, overall the um, remediation rate is at around, um, uh, I think, 90%. Um, for what do we mean by re remediation rate? Um, sorry, so that is um, um, the rate that factories have completed the corrective actions. So I've actually, you know, put in place measures to um, improve their fire structural and building safety. Mm. Um, um, so um, I th uh, so there was a sense that this hadn't hadn't been fully completed, and also the um, you know the empowerment part of the workers, tra the training, the creation of the um, um, the organizational safety and health committees hadn't been fully completed. Um, so I think there was a sense that they wanted to bring this work to um, to completion. Um, but um, yeah, it's also true that um, there's not enough confidence at the moment that the local actors um, 
have the capacity to take over and continue the work of the accord and ensure to what do you mean by capacity there that seems a very polite way of putting it what do you mean by capacity um i mean um because there are engineers in bangladesh right so they, they've been used as part of the accord yeah absolutely. what is it that we think that the government would need to do in order to take over that program but isn't and it, it might not necessarily be that they can't but that they don't want to um, I, I, th- I think that's that's difficult to say whether they whether they cannot or, do, or don't want to. I think some of the more progressive actors definitely realise that um, um, it's about the brand Bangladesh. It's not about the brand. When we say of the progressive actors, we're talking about manufacturers, politicians. Yeah, manufacturers, mm. politicians, um, and um, there's a sense that um, uh, for for Bangladesh to grow and add value mm. um, in as, as a garment manufacturer, they really have to, um, you know, step up and mm. provide better conditions. Right. Um, um, so, it's, so, so it's about, you know, the brand Bangladesh being able to, um, to, to provide that and mm. to self-regulate. Um, as, and that, as an that, that point about a country-level reputation was also important to Cambodia when they signed the US trade agreement because it was Cambodia and also we saw it with Sri Lanka. These countries try to position themselves as socially responsible. So Bangladesh similarly doesn't want to have to be tarred as a place where awful things happen. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic, um, uh, which potentially is uh, can... You know, mitigate the race to the bottom, where mm. countries just compete on the basis of cost, but also on the basis of uh, uh, country or industry reputation. Um, but that's difficult to get going, I guess, on a sort of collective action level, because uh, is, I mean, it's difficult to make a yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, you, meant, you mentioned capacity. So mm. yeah, I mean, that's the argument that, um, for instance, the um, the many manufacturers make that well, the capacity is there. That the accord has uh, employed and um, uh, educated, um, or at least um, you know, um, mm. um, created that big team over hundred people yes. that work for the accord in, in, in Dhaka, mm. um, and potentially you know they could do the same work for, for a local mm. actor. Yes, that's true, but I think the governance structures aren't quite in place yet to um, to ensure that. And I think. Um, before really the work of the original accord has been completed, it's probably very difficult to hand this over. Mm. Um, but so now, lots of uh, the over the past nine months, many more buyers have signed up to the extension of the accord, which is great. Mm-hmm, yeah. So we've got that going. So the the accord will continue as an independent program. But what are its limitations? Um, I mean, I think one of the Main limitations is also one of its main strengths. Right. As paradoxic as it may, may sound, and that it's it's very narrowly focused mm. on uh, worker safety. Yes. Um, so it's I, I would say it's a strength because it has really enabled um, this um, this effort and this focus. And we should not forget just the scale. The the accord covers at the moment two thousand seventy seven factories, mm. and um, so it has established that scale of rigorous initiatives is possible. Mm, mm. And I think that's really important because that's one of the arguments that I often hear, oh, this is a really nice program, but how can we scale this? Mm. So this narrow focus has really um, has really enabled to scale up to cover so many mm, factories. Mm. And I think um, that, that that's one of the main strengths. At the same time, it's a weakness because it doesn't cover 
uh, wages. It doesn't mm. cover overtime. It doesn't cover, um, you know, other workplace issues around um, harassment, um, industrial relations more broadly, the relationship between managers and workers. Mm. And that's, and I think there's, although the accord covers what happens within the factory walls, there is a danger in thinking that if we focus, that we can isolate and create these islands of decent work without thinking about the broader political economy. But it is a major concern, that, as you raised earlier, that many uh, for Bangladesh is repression of trade unions, right? Mm. So if you go on strike, you're at physical risk of being beaten up, and we see that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so don't get me wrong, the, the Accord, I think, has done very important work to empower the unions, um, to work with them, to, uh, to give them a voice as credible actors, as credible partners um, in, um, in labor governance. Um, how, how, does it, how does it make them more credible? I mean, just by the, fa um, by the fact that um, they're involved in the governance structure of the Accord, they're... Um, um, they now face in when when their disputes involving union, they come together. They they meet the brands, so they're just they just kind previously of, it was harder for them to get into the room. Oh, absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and um, but uh, the yeah, so the structure of uh, of unions is. Um, uh, it's a very immature system of industrial relations. Mm. There are very few um, well-functioning unions that are in place. Um, and the government, um, even though after, under international pressure, the labor code has been amended and it's slightly easier to form a union, the government still rejects union applications at a large scale. Um, and um, so it's very, very, very difficult to form a union. It also has Bangladesh's level of um, enterprise level unionism, which means the union is registered in the, in the factory. And if a worker, there's very high turnover as well, but if workers leave, um, they leave the union association. And that is known from research that this leads to very high fragmentation amongst unions and kind of weakens the associational power of, of unions. So, so thinking more broadly beyond Bangladesh, should we try to recreate similar agreements in other countries like Cambodia? Uh, or what, what do you think we should be pushing for? Learning from the Accord, what do you think we should be pushing for more broadly? Um, so I would say three principles. Okay. Um, that I think that are lessons we learned from the Accord that worked really well. And that's around um, what I would call transnational co-determination and um, a collective approach and possibly the narrow focus. Um, so if, if I just go through them, yeah. so I think in terms of transnational co-determination, I think it's really important to involve um, initiatives that um, that involve representatives of labor, yes. so unions, global unions, local unions, um, in the governance of um, these labor initiatives. Um, and also have some sort of mechanism to enable worker voice locally um, at the places of work. Why is it important to have the global unions involved? Um, because I think they really create a link between uh, or um, along the supply chain. And I also think because some of the local unions are weaker in capacity and um, in, in membership and so on. So I think it's really important to have that link, that global link, um, also to, um, to the buyers who can then facilitate Mm, mm. Um, dialogue also with the buyers directly and um, create greater accountability. Mm. 
Um, in terms of the, um, the collective approach, I think that's really important for a variety of reasons. I mean, we've talked about the audit fatigue, mm. um, we've talked about the collective leverage mm. and better, better um, enforcement mm. um, of the agreements. Um, but I also think it creates um, a sense of collective oversight um, amongst buy buyers mm. um, because if, say, in the case of Bangladesh, if one factory is found to be unsafe, all the buyers have to um, sever their relationship with that um, with that factory. Um, and I think there's uh, there's then um, you know buyers monitoring each other in a sense, um, and I think that's really important. Um, and it takes competition or it takes safety out of competition, and I think that's really important that you yes. can't compete anymore on. Um, the lowest standard of safety mm. and that I think really requires um, a collective approach and also the pooling of resources that really enabled the accord to to scale up to have very in-depth inspection for these 2077 um, factories they cover. Mm. So workers um, involved going at scale and finally um, I think narrow approach and um, I think we have we've seen other initiatives say the um, you know the UN Global Compact, yes. which has ten principles, yes. and has been very very successful in expanding its membership. Yes. I think it's so broad that it's really difficult right. to do something or agree on um, concrete mm. um, ways of action for you know these ten principles. What does it mean and mm. so on? Um, so I think um, worker safety is very narrow. Um, remit of course but i think to somehow narrow to and to have a very concrete goal in mind i think is really important i mean it's good to have these broad principles such as the sustainable development mm. goals we have um, 17 goals mm. but they have 17 goals and 169 yeah. targets so it's just really so you can't really imagine an initiative that um that would really be able to cover all of those so the advantage of the so the advantage of the accord is that it's got workers involved, it's focused on a specific issue, and it's got this binding arbitration. So, and and through that, it has there there is evidence from you and others showing that it has led to some improvements. Not a total revolution, not like everything's fine now, but some improvements. So here's a question: for brands who are risk averse, who don't want another horror story, why haven't? they scaled up the accord to other countries. Why hasn't the accord happened in other places? Because we could see something like this happening in Myanmar, for example. Mm. Um, so the accord happened under a lot of pressure yes. from a lot of different mm. actors mm. in the wake of this terrible tragedy. Yes. Um, and it's a bit sad to think that we need a tragedy to get no, really sure. big collective action going. But I think that was nevertheless the context mm. um, that enabled the accord. And it was unprecedented. And um, it, it was really such a massive um, departure from the social auditing, the individual mm. codes of conduct that ha has been there before. Um, so I think it's uh, difficult to replicate. Um, and I also, I think um, we should not ignore that... Um, you know, it's also a bit of a governance conundrum to have private actors enforce such conditions upon, um, you know, a democratically elected government. Right. Um, and so I think... But is that how you characterize the accord as private actors enforcing conditions on a democratically elected government? Are they enforcing it on the government or on the manufacturers? 
Well, and uh, supporting the manufacturers to do that, to financing them. Um, I mean, they're different. Do, do, do people? Do some people in Bangladesh perceive it as an external imposition? Absolutely. Oh, really? Absolutely. So there's a lot of controversy, especially at the beginning, um, around that. Um, from what kind of people? I think from the from the government. Um, the um, I was at the summit in 2014 mm. where um, the Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina mm. spoke and she called it an international conspiracy against wow. Bangladesh wow. and that was a narrative and a discourse that uh, that I picked up among so a number what of did, different actors. So what did people, so people who saw it as an external, uh, sort of maybe as a neo-colonial mm. thing, what did those kind of people want instead? What would they have preferred in the wake of Rainer Plaza. Were they more supportive of the alliance or what would they have liked? Um, the alliance initially um, included the um, the BGMEA, the yeah. Bangladesh mm-hmm. um, Exporters Association. Um, and um, so it was welcomed as an initiative that took the local stakeholders more seriously. Mm. However, due to disagreements, um, the BGMEA also left the alliance after, after some time. Why did the BGMEA leave? Um... Because there were conflicts of interest. Okay. The BGMA at the end of the day is, uh, is an association of the manufacturers that re- represent the interests of the manufacturers, yes. which I think also really showed how the interests were diverging between these initiatives and um, maybe what local actors consider their, their interests. So, so, so mm. people who weren't supporting the accord initially, what would they have preferred? It's, 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 hard, to say. it's hard to say. I mean, I think um, some... Businesses in in Europe um, might have preferred a non-binding agreement, yes, yes. Um, with more, you know, more in the form of the alliance. Mm. Um, I think actors in Bangladesh. I think there was many many described as a wake-up call, but I mm. think they might have preferred to see um, something around the national action plan, and um, which is. Um, um, supported by, I mean, the, the accord is supported by the ILO as well. Mm. But um, those factories that are not covered by the accord, all the alliance, they're covered by the National Action Plan and a team from the um, ILO and um, 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 a local um, local team of engineers would. Um, and I, I could imagine that this might have been the preferred option, um, but it might so not to have not been have stringent. foreign workers coming in. I think that was. Um, I think many of the engineers, they are um, from Bangladesh themselves, yes. but initially, right. many of the inspectors and auditors did come from abroad. Right, That's I true. see. Yeah. So do you think that was the concern, that it was outsiders coming in to fix, you know, a sort of a neo... Was it about... Was the concern about these neo-colonial people coming in, or was it the, con- it was the concern about... What do you think that people who are concerned about Bangladesh, the Accord, what would they have wanted instead? So there was a concern about outsiders coming in was it a concern about the stringency of these grievance mechanisms the stringency because as i understood it, it was only the buyers who were bound by by this mm-hmm. what was the w- w- which bits were externally imposed upon bangladesh i mean let's take a step backwards mm-hmm. and um to maybe the un guiding principles on mm-hmm. human rights mm-hmm. so governments have a responsibility to uh protect human rights yes and companies have responsibility to respect yes. human rights. So the primary responsibility for human rights lies with the government. Right, so um, they thought they go with, their role was being usurped? 
Um, I, this is not only uh, an issue in Bangladesh, that's an issue for transnational governance globally yes. in many other countries um, who feel that their national structures um, are, or there's kind of a superimposition of kind of foreign initiatives, mm. foreign standards mm. on um, national national bodies, national structures, national industries that is not necessarily welcome and local actors often feel, sometimes rightly so, excluded from these initiatives. So um, I think I think it's a big conundrum that um, we've seen in many in many countries globally that governments are not are not able, maybe not willing enough mm. to fulfill their duty to protect human rights. Mm. So we see companies stepping in but this is then seen as an uh, illegitimate, illegitimate um, step or kind of overstepping um, their legitimate role. Um, so I don't think this is limited to Bangladesh only. No, this is of course. A, so maybe a might say challenge. I raised two points there. I think one, we can absolutely understand the idea of a government resenting outsiders coming in to fix something. That sounds very neo-colonial indeed. Though it is, though it is worth bearing in mind that the government of Bangladesh has progressively abdicated its responsibility by deregulating this entire industry and allowing the BGMA to, uh, to have, you know, much more autonomy and uh, very weak state regulation. Um, and if the state does intervene, it's often the police beating up workers, right? So the state intervenes, but only to, so. Uh, that, but I think we can also uh, have some, perhaps some sympathy with the governments of Bangladesh in the sense of being frustrated by these outsiders coming in to push this CSR angle without changing their procurement policies. Because we, we know in the garment industry that many of the reasons why governments and countries, manufacturers, are keen to keep costs low is because they know that buyers favor low prices and cut and run. So they go to a country, say, right, who can give me the best price? Then six months later, they try to renegotiate prices. Six months later, so all these contracts are up in the air and you've got to keep your prices low. Otherwise, you'll lose the business, whether it's to Sri Lanka, Vietnam, or, or a place in rural Bangladesh. And mm. in that context, it's very difficult for a government to promote economic growth, promote jobs, and protect workers. Yes, absolutely. And um, so I think that that is a that that is a major major challenge that I think um, you know is, is really needs to be addressed. I think um, what we hear from manufacturers is that the prices have probably gone down, but not up for. Um, garments sourced from Bangladesh. Nevertheless, the standards and the expectations and the cost have gone up. Um, and so there's really kind of a There's a real that, disconnect, uh, right? Absolutely. absolutely. The yeah. buyers are demanding more from manufacturers, but not changing the prices. And uh, exactly. when, I, when I interview manufacturers, there's always this sense that you speak to CSR and they're like, do more, do more, do more. When you say to when they speak to procurement, it's a totally different arm of the company. Nothing has changed and they're just hammering you on prices. Okay, so let's just take the talk. I want to just bring up one more point. You were going back to this, this, the importance of the states. We're in Berlin now. We're both from London. What can these states be doing, Ger Germany and the UK, to make this, uh, to improve, to prevent another Rainer Plaza? So I think um, there's, uh, first of all, I think what has played 
um, lots but of, of, uh, of a role, but more in the background, yeah. is um, the kind of diplomatic community in Bangladesh has had a lot of conversations with the government in Bangladesh um, and um, the ILO as well, So they ha- which is less visible, but there has been a lot of that going on in the background. Mm. Um, and um, the, at the moment, um, Bangladesh also um, enjoys um, tariff-free access to yes. the European market. Yes. And I think the threat of that being taken away, yes. as Bangladesh also upgrades from a least developed country to a, kind of, um, a lower-income country, yes. um, I think um, is, um, is a real threat mm. that I think um, puts a lot of pressure on the government to... And I think that's... That, that's also one of the reasons why they accepted the Accord and um, Alliance oh, really? uh, in, in, in the first place. Mm. Um, and um, But again, trade policy can be criticised as neo-colonial. You know, the idea that we're saying that we won't trade, we won't give you these trade benefits unless you change some internal governance structure. All these things can be critiqued as neo-colonial. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think also, and, and you mentioned public procurement. Mm-hmm. So, and I think here's maybe the irony that, um, you know, also our own governments want to, you know, source as, you know, cheaply as uh, as possible, but at the same time have these ideas of standards and so on mm-hmm. um, being enforced. So I think that's probably one very important, you know, step as well to think yes. about how can um, public procurement made more sustainable in the UK we have the, um, the social value act mm. which um, is supposed to make that happen but implementation hasn't really um, you know it's taken mm. place the way um, one might have hoped so so I think public procurement would play a very important role in what, what states can do but I think they can do much much more so in the UK also we've had the modern slavery act um, but it only um, I mean some people think it's really you know game changing but it it forces companies to report um, and report on their progress, um, but it doesn't really say very much how this reporting should look like. It's not a proper due diligence approach, so it's it's just s- like upload a statement. And as yeah. I understand it, half of them haven't even done that. So. Yeah, so it's kind of a very light touch yeah. type of reporting. Yeah. yeah. Well. I think perhaps the UK could do more. I mean, I've just come back from France where they've got mandatory due diligence uh, requiring all companies to identify and tackle risks of human rights and environmental abuses. And I know there are discussions about that at the EU level and the UN level. But um, thank you very much, Julianne, for sharing your research with us. Um, And if people are interested, there are links, etc., to more of Julianne's research. Thank you very much. Brilliant.